Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. I invite you to turn with me to Ruth chapter 4. It's been a difficult year for weddings, but recently I heard on radio ads encouraging brides and grooms to start planning for spring and summer weddings ahead. A wedding, indeed, is a lot of work. It requires much planning. Marriage is even more work, requiring more preparation and ongoing focus and attention by each spouse. It's holy work and pleasing to God. We come to our final chapter in Ruth, to the climax of the story, to better understand the nature of marriage and how it points to the great marriage feast to which God calls us heavenward in Christ. Please follow as I read Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me, that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. At the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. 
And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is God's word. Father, once again, I would ask that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The story of Ruth is perhaps the closest thing in the Bible we have to a fairy tale. It's a love story with a happy ending. It's no wonder that Ruth's words to Naomi, where you go, I will go, is so often read at weddings. Great stories have at least these things in common, complete characters, interesting conflict, complicated plots, and satisfying resolution. Over the years, I've grown leery of Disney's Beating the Beast and other fairy tales that really stoke and nurture dreams and aspirations, particularly among girls, to find their perfect soulmate. Now, don't get me wrong, I love Beauty and the Beast, and, but it's basically the story of the bold heroine who tames the rogue male, changing him to be, become a suitable husband. Marriage does grow and change us, man and woman alike. But young people can be naive to overestimating their ability to change someone and overcome their character flaws. People do grow and mature, but it's only in Christ that we are changed from the inside out. Boaz is a godly man who hardly needs changing. He is a Christ-like character of the Old Testament. In chapter 4, Ruth receives her reward and lives happily ever after. It's a beautiful story that bridges the history from the time of the judges to the arrival of King David, this couple's great-grandson. Our text begs the following questions. What does it mean to live happily ever after? How does one access a marriage made in heaven? This morning, I want to approach our passage in three parts. First, the cost of marriage. Second, the commitment of marriage. And third, the consummation of marriage. Well, true to his word, to Ruth in the wee hours of the morning, Boaz goes up to the city gate first thing. The city gate was where the legal business of the town would be transacted. There, the elders would gather to render judgment. Boaz identifies the Redeemer, the one who is 
Elimelech's closest of kin, the one who had the first right of refusal to the property and would have the obligation under Leveret law to marry Ruth. This man is never named, and intentionally so. In the Bible, and especially in the book of Ruth, one's name is equal to one's character. And this man is lacking. Let's call him Mr. So-and-so. Boaz invites to the party another ten elders who serve as witnesses. Now, Boaz is a master negotiator. If he was a realtor, you would want him in your court. He knows how to play his cards well. Boaz cuts to the chase, pointing out that this parcel of property is for sale from Elimelech's estate. It's presumed that Naomi would live upon the proceeds. To this man, this is a no-brainer. No, there's no man around to claim the land. He could buy it. Naomi could live on it for her remaining years, and Mr. So-and-so could add it to his own inheritance. And though not mentioned, it's assumed that a price would be negotiated at this point. And it's only after the bid that Boaz reveals that along with Elimelech's property comes the obligation to, bear, to marry Ruth, the widow the Moabite, to perpetuate the name of the dead. Leveret law is found in Deuteronomy 25, which was intended to protect widows from poverty, but to also preserve the names and the land heritage in Israel. Boaz knew the law. Mr. So-and-so did not. Boaz knew the situation, not Mr. So-and-so. If Mr. So-and-so had been engaged in the community, he could hardly have been unaware of Ruth's presence and that she was part of the package. And yet he is clueless. Only after Mr. So-and-so makes a fair market offer in the hearing of the elders does Boaz reveal that Ruth is part of the deal. Well, now he can't lower his bid. As they say in real estate, you can, once the offer is on the table, you can remove it, but you cannot lower it when the other party knows what you are willing to pay. Boaz is willing to take risk. Mr. So-and-so is not willing to risk his inheritance. By chance, he would have a son by Ruth that would diminish his plans for inheritance for his own sons. Commentator Ian Duguid writes, The irony is that by seeking to protect his future legacy in this way, he ended up leaving himself nameless, missing out on having a share in the biggest legacy of all, a place in God's plan of salvation. Ruth took risk in chapter 3. She risked rejection from Boaz. She risked becoming a scandal if caught in the threshing floor under the cover of darkness. Her risk is rewarded by securing the pledge of a man who is willing to pay the cost of marriage. My wife is a Ruth. I'm convinced that we would not be married this day if she had not taken risk. My wife, Stacy, took risk by going far from home to do a summer-long mission project halfway across the country on the East Coast where we 
together gathered with some 60 students with Campus Crusade for Christ. Finding a husband was not her primary goal, but she had looked around herself and found that the pickings were slim in terms of finding a suitable, godly husband. Somehow, over those 10 weeks, I was not focused on her or any other woman, too busy being spiritual, and so the opportunity passed me by. Besides, she was from the great north of Wisconsin, and I was from Texas. Her poor father was fearful that she might go off and meet some boy from the south. But it was weeks after our trip that my wife wrote me a letter. And in that letter, she thanked me for my service as I had been appointed one of the leaders of the project. And she expressed her disappointment that we had not gotten better acquainted. I took the bait. (laughs) And the rest is history. Ladies, sometimes we men need help. Sometimes. My wife's risk was minuscule compared to Ruth's. No one would hardly know or care had I turned away from her initiative. But in order to make it happen, I had to take up pursuit. The chase was on. Boaz demonstrates the cost of marriage by loving and holy pursuit. His goal is to get Ruth. There is a rival in his way. He must deal wisely and after making quick work of him, claims his reward. The cost of marriage includes risk. We risk rejection. We risk having our hearts broken. We bear the cost of giving up our autonomy. We can no longer make decisions based solely on ourselves, but must consider another's interest. Sometimes, Marriage includes the risk to your life. In her book, Miracle of Miracles, Mina Navisa tells a story some 30 years ago where she and her husband had to flee for their lives from Iran to escape a death sentence for converting to Christianity from Islam. Both came from very well-to-do, privileged families. Mina's father was an Islamic scholar, Unbeknownst to Mina and her husband, in the weeks and months before they got married, they both came to Christ under different circumstances. And as their arranged marriage came nearer, Mina did not know what she was getting herself into, marrying a man she hardly knew, or how he might respond to her Christian faith. Until just days before the wedding, they spotted each other at a secret meeting of believers and approached one another with a proverbial, what are you doing here? The first months of their marriage were wedded bliss and pure joy. And before long, they were expecting their first child. Theirs was a marriage made in heaven. But then all hell broke loose. The Christian group they were a part of was found out. Leaders were locked up and executed. As the merciless authorities tightened the noose around them, they had to choose, recant their faith, die in prison, 
or run? Well, they and another couple decided to run, utilizing an underground network that led them by escape to Turkey, and then on into Europe, but not without great cost. They lost their baby. Mina suffered a miscarriage under the intense stress of flight. They gave up their privilege, becoming refugees in a foreign land, having to learn new languages to make a living. They lost the support of their family, rejected by them for conversion. But they gained community in the body of Christ, and for decades now have had a fruitful ministry, leading hundreds of Muslims to faith in Christ, including Mina's mother and even eventually her own father. We may argue over whether a sovereign God can truly take risk, but I like to think of God as a risk taker when you consider the cost, the enormous cost of sending his own son on this mad quest to purchase a bride, to redeem a people from this wretched world. Boaz shows us something of the boldness and the pursuit of our great Redeemer. Boaz's wisdom and shrewdness foreshadows the one who would silence his self-righteous critics. Boaz bore a cost financially and socially to acquire Ruth. But his was a pale shadow compared to the cost of our Savior who left the comfort and riches of heaven to bear the grit and the temptations and the burdens of this life, suffering the righteous indignation of a holy God, bearing our punishment on a cross of torture. Our Redeemer did not save us from a safe distance. They came alongside of us to identify with us. Jesus did not merely risk his reputation. He became a man of no reputation despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Our Savior knows marriage comes at a cost, but the reward is worth it. Boaz makes his commitment to marriage and Ruth by public intent. After Mr. So-and-so declines, Boaz gladly assumes the role of Redeemer, Verses 7 and 8 give the interesting background of, of a no longer practiced custom at the time of the story's publication, whereby a man would remove his sandal and guarantee the transaction. It was like rendering a copy of one's birth certificate or driver's license. We recall how Tamar had required of Judah his signet ring, cord, and staff to guarantee his pledge to provide her a goat. She later uses those identity markers to expose him as the father of her twins. Boaz's speech in verses 9 through 10 declares his intentions before the elders and all the witnesses that he had not only bought the land from Naomi, which had belonged to Elimelech and his sons Kilion and Malon, but had paid for the right to marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. Boaz commits to Ruth, a foreigner, a widow, who was possibly barren, having been married to Malon for years without a child. Boaz commits himself to something greater than himself, to perpetuate the name of the dead 
that it might not be cut off in Israel. What did Boaz owe Elimelech? Or Malon, for that matter? Weren't they the faithless family that had left to seek a fortune in Moab? Boaz does not just commit himself to Ruth. He commits himself to marriage. He commits himself to her good and God's glory. He is committed to God's design for marriage, by which he uses to spread his image bearers over the face of the earth, to communicate to the world his hesed, steadfast love to his people. When you say, I do, to your beloved, you are not merely committing yourself to him or her. You commit yourself to God. It's a vow. You are committing yourself before public witnesses. That's why we call it a covenant. Marriage is not just satisfying your own desires. Oh no, it is much bigger than you. By it, we commit ourselves to God's plan, his kingdom purposes to spread his glory among the nations through our witness, through our mutual affection, through our triumphs and trials, through our offspring, and through our service together in the name of Christ. Not long ago, I was listening to the radio and I heard the song Freebird by Leonard Skinnerd, the 70s rockabilly band. And it's a song that glorifies a single life and life on the road and a man's refusal to be tied down to a woman. He will not be caged like a bird. He's free. Over and over in the song, he insists that he cannot change. As if to tell that woman, don't try to change him. But then there's a surprising end to the song where the singer cries out to the Lord, help me change. The influence of southern gospel music. A song touches a deep problem in our society. People's reluctance or perceived inability to commit, to always keep options open. A perversion of God's will. A self-centered kind of freedom. A self-indulgent idolatry. Real men commit. Real men take risks at personal cost. If that's hard for you, then ask the Lord to help you change. You will not be a Boaz or a Ruth overnight. But any man or woman who submits to the Lord and his word will see the Spirit turn us from sensual pleasures and the idolatry of wealth to walk in a manner that is pleasing to God and merits the praise of others. Boaz was not looking for praise. But he is celebrated in verses 11 and 12 by the elders. They reward Boaz by, for his bold risk, his commitment, and knows that they bless Ruth, that she might be like Rachel and Leah, the matriarchs, both of whom suffered barrenness, but together built up Israel. In contrast to Mr. So-and-so, who remained nameless. The elders call upon the Lord to bless Boaz, that his name would be renowned, that his house would be like 
Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Here Paul Miller writes with insight, both Tamar and Ruth are childless widows and foreigners who find themselves alone and vulnerable. Each comes up with a daring plan that involves approaching an older man for marriage in an audacious setting. These two feisty women become the heads of dynasties, even legends. No wonder the villagers think of Tamar when they see Ruth. Rachel, Leah, Tamar were not exactly paragons of virtue. They were flawed women, but by faith, they built up the ranks of God's people. Boaz's commitment to Ruth speaks of the bold and gracious commitment of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who remains faithful to his people despite our suspect history. Jesus' own genealogy, recorded in Matthew 1, is filled with a checkered ancestry that lists four foreign scandalous women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, listed as the wife of Uriah. It's a reminder that God's people have a past. Even the disciples of our Lord were a motley crew of sorts whom the authorities scorned. Like the sinful woman who washed the feet of Jesus. Jesus says to all of us who have read in our ledger, come to me, as was just sung by the choir. Let me wash you. Become my bride. In verse 13, Boaz and Ruth marry. Consummation has arrived. And the Lord gave Ruth conception that she would bear a son. The Lord's providence and will is fulfilled through the means of the prayers of God's people to bring forth fruitful offspring. The response of the women is euphoric. They say to Naomi, who had gone away from them full, but returned to them empty, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. The women rejoice with their friend who had suffered much, offering accolades upon Boaz and upon the newborn child who would be a restorer of life and a nourisher to her in her old age. But they save the best praise for Ruth, blessing God for giving her a daughter-in-law that loves her, a notoriously challenging relationship, a daughter-in-law who is better than seven sons. What we have here is a little taste of heaven. The place where sorrows cease, where tears are washed away, where heroic deeds of faith are recounted and celebrated, where the redeemed from every age and nation enjoy the lasting consummation of God forever. The story ends with a tender image of Naomi taking up her grandson and becoming his nurse. They name him Obed, which means servant, like his father, to care for Naomi in her old age. Obed would father Jesse. Jesse would go on to have eight sons, the youngest of whom was David, the redeemer of Israel. The author here is not just revealing God's 
provision for a desolate family, but how he would provide them a king to give them rest from their enemies. And as scripture progresses, we learn that this king's descendant would be a far greater king who would provide rest not just for Israel, but for the whole world. Rest and redemption from sin and judgment. Our text closes with a genealogy, the ten generations from Perez to David, and in it we are reminded that Boaz's father was Salmon. He is the man of Judah who married Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute who switched her allegiance away from a condemned people to make alliance with Joshua's men at the sacking of Jericho. Boaz seems to share his father's taste for bold foreign women. But in him we see the likeness of our Redeemer, who welcomes the foreigner, who takes the unclean, who accepts the imperfect, wrecked by sin, to make us whole again. Unlike Ruth, God does not choose us because of our great faith, our exceptional character or beauty, but for the glory of his own grace and love for us in Christ Jesus. Ruth and Boaz had a marriage made in heaven. Many of you have shared that great joy, and that is glorious. Others of you have not. Even if marriage has been elusive for you, if you were married and find yourself single again, or if marriage has brought you much pain and sorrow, if you are in Christ, you have a marriage made in heaven. God sent his son from heaven to pursue you, to purchase you, to woo you, to love you, to carry you away to enjoy sweet fellowship with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Consider the cost. Commit yourself to follow Christ. Pursue the consummation that awaits those who love him. This is no fairy tale, but the truth of the gospel according to his unfailing word. Only in Christ do we truly live happily ever after. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are so grateful for your word, for marriage, for the picture of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ to redeem us for yourself. Help us to walk in that hope and that joy. Bless us and lead us to be your witnesses before a watching world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.